0: Okay, I just wanted to make sure that Matt got... It. Good. Um, um, <clears throat> one of the books that has been... That's, I have not read it, I, I must confess, but is often quoted. I'm going to have to break down and read it. Uh, it's a secular book by a man by the name of Neil Postman. Uh, and the title of the book is Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he's, uh, it's, a, it's a commentary on the culture in which we find ourselves... And uh, he makes several comments that I I can only... I mean, there's only two things that I want to draw to your attention from this. But um, uh, Boston in the 18th century was uh, the focal point of radiating the American spirit. New York in the 19th century and Chicago in the early 20th century. What city do you think today is the city that is the center of radiating American spirit? Los Angeles, good guess, Wrong. but good guess. Uh, listen to what at least what Postman says. For Las Vegas is a city entirely devoted to the idea of entertainment and as such proclaims the spirit of a culture in which all public discourse increasingly takes the form of entertainment. The result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. I just think that's an interesting observation that Las Vegas has become... The center, the emanating point of the American spirit, I'm not sure, but I'm reading these things for a couple reasons because I want to plead with you in just a minute. But um, this is another guy that, um, uh, let me just read you this statistic. Historian Harry Stout of Yale University estimates that the average New Englander heard 7,000 sermons in a lifetime, about 15,000 hours of concentrated, concentrated listening. There were no competing voices, he points out. So the sermon was an even more influential medium than television is today. Tough-mindedness, such tough-mindedness about words is rare in Protestant circles today. Our piety is soft-minded, even sentimental. But our best writers on the subject have warned us clearly enough. Now here's a, a quote from Jacques Ellul. He's a Frenchman. Anyone wishing to save humanity today must first of all save the word. And he is not talking about this book. He goes on, A century ago, stern Kierkegaard noted the beginning of the process. The Christian faith has become so diluted that what was needed was to win back the lost power and meaning of words. Let me read you the, other, the early quote. Anyone wishing to save humanity today must first of all save the Word. Not the Bible now, just words. That words have meaning and that words are packed with certain truths that must be unfolded and, and unpacked. And if you're going to save the culture... You're going to have to save words. Now, the book, by the way, if you'd, if you'd like to pick it up, "Fit Bodies, Fat Minds by Os Guinness, is, is really a challenging book. But I'm, saying, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, only the barest of minorities agree with the, what this book is saying. Because what you have in evangelicalism today is, um, is a church that has fallen prey to the whole entertainment industry. And... Um, uh, everything must have entertainment value, or it's not going to—it's um, not going to make an impact. People are not going to uh, um, uh, make it the food of their souls. Now, I say all that to say this, guys. Last week uh, I introduced—or no, it wasn't last week; it was the week before that—I introduced to you, really, or I reintroduced to you, Romans chapter four. And I left you, uh, you might recall, with what I called as a digression. And I said that we were in verse 3, <clears throat> we were in verse 3 of Romans 4, and I left you by saying in essence that there is an appeal by Paul to the Old Testament. He quotes an Old Testament verse. He quotes uh, Genesis fifteen six. And then my digression was to say, <clears throat> the one book that is so humiliated uh, by the unbelieving world today is the book of Genesis. And I'm saying, and, and what I said is, uh, particularly, of course, the creation chapters in, in Genesis 1 and 2. And what my appeal was, uh, two weeks ago, is that if, if Genesis 1 and 2 are not true and are fanciful, then how can Paul make such a deliberate effort to, to base his argument on a, on a statement that comes 13 chapters later in the same book? And that was, that's where we ended two weeks ago. So what I have to do tonight is almost re, reintroduce uh, Romans chapter 4. And as I prepared this morning, and really, I'm really prepared for tonight and to next week, I, 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 I had this thought, this is some rough sledding. It's not rough in, the, in terms of its, of its condemnatory nature, It's rough because it requires you to think. And um, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, there is not one piece of lightness in terms of thinking in all my notes. (laughs) It's not one break in my notes from a concentrated effort of understanding words words that are extraordinarily important. And so what I'm going to do, I guess, is I'm going to bore you, both tonight and next week. The chances are very good that it will be another very boring Wednesday night. Because this argument, ladies and gentlemen, I'll say this. One of the most masterful statements and definitions on the doctrine of justification by faith, I think, is found in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And I've never really thought of that that way. I mean, a, a, a statement of justification by faith in Romans 4, 5? So what I'm asking you to do, you've heard this language before, to gird up the loins of your mind. It, ladies and gentlemen, if we do not understand, and Jimmy called you a backbone, and, and, and in, in large measure I agree with him, If if the words of this marvelous truth just basically are ho-hum to us, then, you know then who's going to save humanity <laughs> because um, we've got to understand every word so with that i want to re reintroduce to you romans 4 verse 3 where you find paul quoting a verse from genesis 15:6 that is all it is it is a quote from Genesis fifteen six. But it is the first time that the doctrine of justification by faith is stated clearly in the Bible. And you will note very interestingly, it is stated in Genesis fifteen. The first time that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is stated in the Bible, it is stated in Genesis fifteen six, not John three or Romans seven. It's stated in Genesis 15. Um, so that would mean that it's contained in the Old Testament, not the New, which is an interesting concept for many. Now, you don't need to turn to Genesis 15 because Genesis 15:6 is right there in verse 3. <clears throat> it's simply a quote. <clears throat> for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That 15:6 of the book of Genesis, okay? Now, So what we have to do is unpack a couple of those words, really just one, um, um, because Paul is again declaring the doctrine of justification, and I guess y'all get tired of hearing it, but if we're going to study Romans, this is what we're faced with, because Paul is so eager to win his Jewish, Jewish audience, and so what he is doing now is that he is using a great hero in their history to say, okay, Jewish audience if Abraham was saved this way, why do you think that you're saved in a different way? And so if he can prove that Abraham was saved on the basis of this doctrine that he preaches or preached, then it would undermine what Judaism stood for and what, unfortunately, Judaism still stands for uh, today. We're told that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness um there's nothing in there that should should baffle you but ladies and gentlemen there is there are concepts here that must be grappled with and understood and understood perfectly perfectly god comes to abraham when he's 99 years old and initiates a covenant with him now that's a that's another good word to remember that god initiates the covenant um, Abraham is, comes from a family of idol worshippers, as you know, and uh, he's not doing anything in particularly uh, religious when God comes to him and establishes a covenant with him. God is initiating that. The blessings of that covenant is initiated by God are woven into three or four chapters, uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. But essentially, the essence of the, the blessings of the covenant that God establishes with Abraham, essentially the blessing is this, that through you, Abraham, and your descendants, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, which is a very subtle reference to Christ. Through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, everybody in the face of the planet is going to be blessed, ultimately through you. That is the covenant, that, uh, or essentially the covenant. There's other things. He promises the land. He promises um, uh, a a posterity. But in essence, the covenant is, (coughs) not only am I going to give you a, 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 a heritage, a family, a son, but through you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then, in Genesis chapter 22, a very famous chapter of Scripture... Great drama in Genesis 22 when Abraham is asked to go sacrifice his son Isaac on the hill of the Mount of Moriah. Um, In that event, Abraham gets a a little bit more clarity as to what God is really up to. Um, uh, Surely you understand that Abraham didn't understand things fully. He didn't understand things as well as you and I understand them. But I want you to stick your finger in um, in Romans four, and if you can find John eight real quick, I want you to see a statement that Jesus makes. Um, in John eight verse fifty six, he again is speaking. Jesus is speaking to a, a Jewish audience, and he says in John eight fifty six, "Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day." says Jesus, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus said, Your father Abraham, Mr. and Mrs. Jew, he, Abraham saw my day. He saw it not real clearly. Uh, in fact, he was separated from it by 2,000 years of um, unclarity. But he saw something about Jesus' day. And He got a large dose of clarity in Genesis 22. You do know, do you not, that it is in Genesis 22 where we are given this name. It's in Genesis 22 that God names Himself That name, which you all know to be the name of God will provide. Now, my point is, I don't know how much uh, uh, Abraham saw. But this is the heart of it. This is the heart of what Abraham saw and understood. That whatever there was going to be in terms of justifying him... It was going to be God that was going to provide it. And I want to suggest to you that it was in Genesis 22 that Abraham committed himself to God's way of doing things. And God's way of doing things, Abraham understood, was going to be that he was going to provide it. Whatever it is, I don't, I don't understand exactly what, it's, what He's going to provide, etc., etc., etc. But God was going to provide the righteousness necessary. And when He did provide, it would exclude every particle of boasting um, that He may have been tempted to perform. What I'm suggesting is the thing that Abraham understood was that salvation somehow was going to be a God-provided thing. Now, again, as the Scriptures unfold, we get more insight as to what it's going to be like, a suffering servant and you know, and all that business. But the, the one thing that Abraham got is that Jehovah Jireh, <laughs> is that God was going to have to provide it, whatever He is. God was. So what He did is committed Himself to the fact That God would provide. Now, I'm suggesting that that's what verse 3 of Romans 4 means. That Abraham believed God. Well, what did he believe? He believed. I don't know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, but whatever it is, you're going to do the providing. And so by believing that, by... uh, I hate to even use the word, but I by exercising faith at that moment that God would provide, whatever it is He's going to provide, at that moment we are told it was accounted to Him for righteousness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is where the distinctions get very, very important. (laughs) Abraham believed God by His so doing that is not righteousness. What Abraham did is not right. Faith is not righteousness. Faith sets in motion God's giving righteousness or accounting. And we're going to get to that word and spend a good deal of time on it. By faith, Abraham becomes Reckoned as righteous. Faith is is, is the recipient of the righteousness by which God justifies sinners. Faith is not the righteousness. Faith is simply the thing that God has granted us that allows us to see that whatever He's going to do, He's going to have to be the provider of it. What we need to stand before God is righteousness. The righteousness came when it was provided outside of us. And then the very righteousness that was demanded of me is provided by God and then when faith is exercised, that righteousness that has nothing to do with me but that God demands Is then placed in my account. And that's the word that I want us to spend a few minutes on right now. First of all, how many of you have this New Geneva Study Bible? How many of you have this? Oh, 25 of you, I guess. I want you to look in the margin, because I thought this was so interesting this morning. If you look in the margin and and you see under verse 3, there's a little. Well, look in verse 3 and you'll see. Uh, there's a, a, a two next to the accounted Now go over here to the margin And you see number two Imputed, credited, reckoned, counted The point is That the translators of this word The, the, the Greek word is logizomai That's not the word that you find here But that's the Greek word Logizomai So the, 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 the translators come to this word Logizomai And they're trying to say Well you know What, what English word should we use? Well I don't know in their opinions, the best word was accounted. But over the margin, they say, well, it can also uh, be translated imputed, credited, reckoned, or accounted. All I'm doing that for is to let you know, ladies and gentlemen, those are going to help you understand the term logizomai. And it is a very critical word here. In fact, the same word is found in verse 6, and it is, it is translated imputes. In, the, in this Bible I got. Get this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this word, logizomai, appears 10 times in 25 verses. It appears in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. 10 times in one chapter. Same verb, logizomai. So we better make sure that we understand logizomai, hadn't we? Abraham is up there on Mount Moriah. He gets it. Oh, what you're saying to me, God, is that you're going to save sinful people, but you're going to have to provide it. That's maybe all he knows. He says, okay, then I'm going to cease any kind of attempt to earn it. And I'm going to simply acknowledge that I believe that you're going to provide it. And at that moment, it is imputed unto him for righteousness. He becomes, and that's a a scary word too, ladies and gentlemen. He becomes, that word becomes, very scary word, because he does not become constitutively, uh, he, he is not constituted righteous. You understand that? I mean you don't you don't get righteous, you just get righteousness credited to you. When you became a Christian, did you go on sinning? Well, I didn't. There was not supposed to be any laughter tonight, you know? Um, well of course we did, because this event does not turn us into a righteous person. It simply credits us with righteousness. A righteousness provided by someone else. Guys, we've done this before, but it's imperative that you understand that word That is only one of the English words, but it's the best one, I think, that is used to translate logizomai. Impute means to put something in someone else's account when we have nothing at all. And God puts that... If you'd like to think of it in terms of a, a checking account, let's say your checking balance is zero and God places something in there. He, he does not make us righteous. In fact, we are treated or regarded as if we were actually righteous, though in and of ourselves we remain, we remain sinful. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you a Latin theological term, that if you could get this down, I'm telling you, it's a, it's called Simul Eustace et Peccator. It's a Latin. Um, it's a Latin summary of what I'm trying to tell you. Simul at the same time, Eustace, at the same time. Just and, what's a peccadillo? It's a small sin. At the same time, just and sinful. We're going to have to come back to that in the next verse, by the way, Dave. But the plenteous, that's who you are. That's what Abraham was. At the same time that he, Genesis 15:6 6 occurred, at the same time, he was just and yet sinful. Because righteousness was imputed to him. It didn't make him righteous. It just gave him something that he did not have and had no way of ever getting it himself. It is a legal transfer by which all of God's claims against us are satisfied, ladies and gentlemen. When uh, when we're told here that Abraham believed God and and was reckoned to him for righteousness, it simply means that God was given, or that Abraham came to the place where he understood that God's way of justification would not happen based on what he did and what he performed. He understood Oh, it's not going to come that way. It's going to come when God provides it. It is not going to be by law. It is not going to be by circumcision. It is not going to be by any of those things or any of the newly acquired evangelical trappings. But that God is going to impute righteousness of His Son to me enabling us to see all that. By faith it, it, it comes to us by the instrument of faith But the righteousness Is that of Jesus Christ Now let me, let, me, let me do verse um, 4 Tonight We'll get that out of the way and So we can come back and dive into the, uh, A marvelously complex statement in verse 5 But, but verse 4 is very simple Um, the basic truth that Paul's trying to convey is in verse 3, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to elaborate what he's saying in verses 4 and 5, and in verse 4, he takes a simple uh, illustration right out of the marketplace. Let me see if I can illustrate. If I cut your lawn, that would be a pseudo-miracle, but if I cut your lawn and you pay me for it, you're paying me for it, is not a gracious act on your part. Um, it is simply paying what you owe me. It was a wage and thus it was an obligation that was on you. Look at what he says. Now to him he works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. If I cut your grass and I ring the doorbell and I say to you, $75 please, and you give me $75. You have not done a gracious thing to me. You have simply paid something that you owe. And there is obligation on you to pay what you owe. Um, A wage places an obligation on the one to whom the work was done. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul says, not to him who works, That is, if you're trying to get to heaven by your working, then I say to you, what you will get is something that you yourself have earned. When God grants it to you, it won't be a gift. It will be an obligation on God that He owes you, and you have earned it. That's what he's stating in verse 4. Gang, um, if... If, as the Jew thought, obedience equals getting right with God, or however you want to say it, then what you then 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 salvation is by no way a gift, um, and God is under an obligation to save me. Do you get that? Do you see that very simple statement? If if it if it means that I'm going to get in by my obedience, then God is under obligation. He owes it to me. And when I get there, He's got to pay off, which creates in me a sense of pride in my own wonder-working doings. But if faith is simply trusting in God's promises to us that He will provide, then then the object of faith is not on what I did to perform. It, the object of the faith is in God and what He provided. Gang, let me... This is why, when I, when I talk to men about what does it mean to become a Christian, here's what I always tell them. I do not ever say, you can use it if you like. I wouldn't be caught dead with these words in my mouth. I would not dream of saying, invite Jesus into your heart. I would not ever say that. Number one, I think it clouds the picture. I don't think it helps the picture. What I say, which I hope is clearer, is that you must transfer trust. You remove trust from one thing and place it on another. Now, guys, let me do this real quick and we're finished. This will will illustrate, I hope, what I've been trying to say here so passionately. (laughs) Um, Years ago, well, actually, this was not done by... A survey was... R.C. Sproul used to be the director of evangelism at the First Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati. Did you ever... He surveyed people uh, and what they thought about how they were going to get into heaven. And it was either 97 or 98% had one of three answers that they gave to this question. Here's the question. Assuming for the moment that there is a heaven... What would you think would be the terms of entrance into heaven? Because some people don't even believe in heaven. But assuming for the moment that there is a heaven, what what would you suggest would be the terms of admission into heaven? The first reply that came in this 97% figure was this. Because I've tried to be good... The second reply was, because I believe in Him and try to obey Him. The third reply uh, in this, this survey was, because I believe in Him with all my heart. Now ladies and gentlemen you watch and I hope to illustrate to you the importance of words. This is pure works. See that? No question about that is it? This is faith plus works. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, number three... Because I believe in Him with all my heart, will not save you. Do you see how utterly contrary this is? It sounds wonderful to what Abraham did. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to heaven because I believe. I'm going to heaven because God has imputed it. He has imputed righteousness to me. And I am considered, I am treated, I am regarded, I am viewed in heaven as righteous. Something that God gave me. And then, as I stood on a mount somewhere, He granted me the gift of faith to see, Oh, that's all wrong. the way he's doing it is what I want to be a part of. I trust that he'll provide. Period. So when I say somebody, when they, you know, when they want to know, how can I become a Christian? I say, transfer your trust off of this, any of it, yourself, yourself and religion and pure works. You're going to rid of all that. Because the thing that saves us is that when we believe God, He reckons to us. He reckons righteousness. He imputes us as right. He imputes righteousness to us. Is any more that you like they will make it more clear. But ladies and gentlemen, when God when Abraham believed God, he said, I'm committing myself to God's way of doing things. And God's way of doing things is imputing righteousness, not earning it. Because I believed. And my faith required of him. No way, I hope that is ninety two percent clear. Because gang, it's imperative that it be. See, all of these words, that's why they're so now, I read that stuff at the beginning. Words can make a difference. These words are wrong. That's ahead. Our Father, I pray that you will take my vain babblings and make them in some way very understandable to your people, such that they can clearly and precisely define what it is that they're standing on. That they are not standing on their faith, but they are standing on righteousness provided by Jesus Christ in all of his perfect obedience. The very thing that you demanded, you provided. And I got it because you gave it to me. And not only that, you granted me the gift of faith to see it and understand it and embrace it. Lord God, like the meaning of rich, profound words Never lose their value among us. Use us, O God, to win the culture that is entertaining itself to death. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and good night.